to episode three, season two of Rigged. In this episode, Jamie, Ilias, and Chris continue to review the Massachusetts Inspector General's 2016 supplemental report on the Hinton Lab. The boys reference lawyer Nathan Tamulis's rebuttal to the 2016 report and expose all of the flaws and false assertions the Inspector General's office used to cover up the unyielding incompetence of the Hinton Lab. As always, please like and subscribe and enjoy this episode of the Rigged Podcast. <laughs> All right. Hello. We are back after a hiatus. We've returned to kind of close out the OIG supplemental report. That's what we're going to be doing in today's episode. Um, There is a lawyer who we've referenced before, uh, Nathan Tamulis, who who wrote a rebuttal um, shortly after uh, the OIG supplemental report came out. He must have read the supplemental report and just been furious because I believe the supplemental report came out in January of 2016. And he February. Oh, he wrote it came out in February. Well, he wrote this February 7th of 2016. So um, he must have been extremely. Uh, oh, yeah, it came out February 2nd. And then five days later. Uh, Nathan came out with um, a rebuttal that we are going to go over uh, because he does a great job at really um, making concise arguments and saying exactly what the problems with that report are. We've we've been over uh, the last two episodes. We've kind of given a summary of what the uh, OIG report was in the OIG's words. And now we're going to go over exactly why... Um, that report was, I, I would say, pointless and problematic. Would you guys agree with that? Certainly problematic. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and I say pointless because if you're going to do retesting, you got to retest it all. I think, Chris, you made that point last time where you can't pick and choose. And, and we went over the, the rationale in the last episode as to why they dwindled down so many hundreds of thousands of samples to like 609 um, and the kind of faulty reasoning uh, that they gave. But um, yeah, you guys want to say anything before we get going? Well, I, I would just say that, you know, pointless um um, suggests that everybody kind of knew or should have known that they were wasting their time. I, I would say the supplemental report report was highly purposeful. And I think hopefully we can glean from today what the purpose was. Um, if the purpose was to enlighten and to inform, it would probably have used chemists' names. Uh, if the purpose was to um, uh, enlighten and inform, it probably would have brought you up to date on everything that had been uncovered since 2014, instead of just filling in a few little uh, 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 you know pieces of an allegedly uh, uh, missing puzzle, um, but really leaving more uh, questions unanswered. So uh, maybe we can figure out what the purpose was of this supplemental report. Agreed. Um, All right. So uh, Nathan gives us an executive summary. He says the supplemental report issued by the Office of the Inspector General on February 2nd, 2016, contains a number of deeply concerning flaws that call into question its usefulness and its conclusions. These flaws include 
um, inadequate or even omitted descriptions of methodologies used, missing and unreleased data, discrepancies between the March 2014 report and the supplemental report, and inaccurate and unsupported conclusions. Other than that, it was great. Um, of highest concern, the OIG's selection of samples for retesting was inadequate to support their conclusions of accuracy, which I think we all agree on, right? Um, a non-random selection of a mere 609 samples from one carefully sele selected class of samples cannot be used to, to statistically validate the accuracy of a decade of testing and over 212,000 uh, samples. Um, performed by a dozen of different analysts, uh, by dozens of different analysts, and resulting in hundreds of different findings. Now, that is a mouthful right there, but that to me is the crux of the problem with this report. They released it. Not only did they release it and like not really support it in any way, i.e., like they, they weren't going on talk shows and saying, hey, you know, th this supplemental report is to clear some things up. They just kind of threw it out there and walked away. Um, well, I, I remember the week this came out, um, I think someone from the OIG's office appeared either on WBUR or WGBH talking about, you know, it's been so long, I don't have an exact quote, but how sort of the story about Hinton's over and we're very glad to publish a supplemental report because we've looked into everything and we can now definitively say everything's good. Okay. All right. So they washed, they, they put it out there and they're like, okay, we're done. This is, uh, this is everything that's needed. And meanwhile, it was, they only retested 609 samples out of 212,000 samples and said everything was solid there. And so, yeah. of, oh, go ahead. I was going to say Nathan's point about it being non-random is really important. So, I mean, obviously if, if drugs have been, destroyed out of ordinary course, you know, there's no way we can criticize them for that. But then we talked in the last couple of episodes how they sort of cherry picked which samples they would retest. And it looked like at one point when there was a certain category of evidence samples that the independent lab was testing and it came back with results that they didn't seem to like, they went Oh, actually, forget about testing those types of samples. N never mind. Uh, just focus on this even smaller batch of uh, material to, to work with. Right. And they just kept dwindling. And like some of the excuses they were using were just, it, it was it was just laughable. Right. And to, to hit the point that Chris just made about um, non-random, let's say that you, and this is actually uh, probably true, Let's say you discovered that TSA was letting guns onto airplanes and you've tried to figure out how does TSA let guns onto airplanes and you, you decided to do a, a sample limited to instances where somebody went through the metal detector and then the agent said, no, 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 go back, go back through again. Okay, so you're now limiting of the tens of thousands of people who passed through this gate, you're reducing it to the, only to those hundreds that went through the gate and then had to go back again. So this is, these are multi-run samples, right? Well, isn't the concern the people who sailed through with no scrutiny, isn't that what you're worried about? Is, are the ones that you had no clue that they had a weapon and they boarded the airplane. 
So I think the fact that they chose only the people who maybe beeped the machine or maybe who had to go back through a couple times uh, uh, as their denominator is to me wildly insane when the denominator includes all the people who passed through that gate and boarded an airplane. And now you're trying to figure out how many of those people uh, shouldn't have been allowed to board. So I think that's the problem here. The problem here is the choice of the, 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 the circumstances at which you're interested in a case and they're not interested in the cases that sailed through on a single test. I think the original justification was they, they tried to figure out as best they could what Dukin was doing and said, let's look at all the multi-run samples because she was capitalizing on that in order to get away with her fraud for so long. But the problem, as I mentioned before, is when they realized there were different vectors, so to speak, of uh, ways that misconduct could occur or way that, ways that an evidence sample could be tampered with or uh, you know, misidentified uh, as a result of errors in the lab. When they started figuring out there were many more ways that misconduct could occur, they didn't expand their search criteria. Right. But, right. Uh, and, and not to jump ahead, but I think we touched on this last time, but once you're done with your list of samples, which ultimately the supplemental report compiles a list, you would do what I did, which is you made a little table where you have your chemist one and your chemist two, and you would expect to see a left-hand column, sample one, all Annie Dukins, and then a left hand, a right-hand column of chemist two of no Annie Dukins. And you'd say, wow, we really nailed this story and, and got it airtight. Problem is that's not what happened. Yeah. So either you you disproved your own thesis and had to go back and, and to the drawing board and start from scratch, or you... I don't know, didn't care. And we're just trying to cram down some sort of, um, um, you know, smokescreen. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, they didn't, they weren't going to blow. The point of this supplemental report was not to blow up the narrative that they spent all that time building in 2014. Right. And so the minute they found that there were other actors that were doing weird stuff, let's say, uh, or stuff that couldn't be uh, rationally explained. Um, they, I, I'm, I'm sure there must have been a panic moment. I, I can't get into the heads of these people. I don't know what um, what they were thinking or what what went down. But the minute they saw that it was not just Dukin that had questionable um, activities and conduct, um, you know, they must have really started paring things down and. Uh, and that's, I think, a big reason why they didn't use any of the chemists' names for all of the, uh, as we as we mentioned before, for all of the retests and all of the things they resampled. So um, Nathan continues here. The results of the retesting done demonstrate a high level of error on the part of the Hinton Laboratory. Notice how he's, he says the Hinton Laboratory and not Annie Dukin. Of the 609 samples retested, 24 of them... 4% had serious issues. 11 contained no controlled substance, substances, which is incredibly significant. Despite the Hinton's lab previous um, certification, seven contained a different controlled substance than the one the lab certified. Six had indications of the controlled substance Hinton found, but the independent lab following their protocols could not confirm the results. Uh, that is incredibly significant because all of those uh, results were certified in court as being what they, the Hinton lab said they were. 
So those were all things that people went to jail for. And you come to find out just out of 609, that 4% of them were completely wrong. (laughs) That is crazy. Yeah, focusing back on what you said, I don't know if everything went into court because I don't know if all these people went to trial, but we did learn from the supplemental report. I think they didn't test anything where there were no adverse consequences. Yeah. So, yeah. So we know, I don't know if every single one of these people went to prison, but however they define adverse consequences, something happened in their criminal case, whether they got probation or jail time. Uh, But still, I mean, the people who had samples that the lab incorrectly certified as positive for a drug when there was no drug there, certainly (laughs) you should not have faced those adverse uh, dispositions regardless of what they were. Absolutely. And I mean, in the OIG, in the supplemental report, they said, you know, the Plymouth County was contacted, all the different DA's offices were contacted, right? But where I I don't think where, where there wasn't a charge or where you know, no one took a plea or, or nothing happened. Like you were saying, no adverse results. They, I think they stated that in the report, mm-hmm. didn't they, Chris? I, that's my memory. Yeah. So <laughs> at least some of them did result in a criminal conviction. And there was completely fault, uh, false positives. Um, the OIG also concludes that uh, DPH only oh. misclassified BZP and Foxy as Class C when previous analysis of the Hinton database and the Duke and of the Duke and Farrakh emails by CPCS has demonstrated otherwise. We know that that right there is a, a misrepresentation, we'll say. I say perhaps a lie. I mean, a lie, you know, you guys are lawyers, so we all know that a lie, you have to have intent to lie. But we know that they have talked about other drugs outside like bath salts and um, Molly and other, uh, other things that were being called class E that were not class E by these chemists. And they knew that they were doing that. And um, the OIG in this report just totally breezes over that. I don't want to spend too much time on class C because we're going to do a whole episode on that. But that to me is incredibly significant because that right there shows that there is an intent to mislead um, whoever this report was intended for by saying that there was only two drugs misrepresented, misrepresented as Class C when there were multiple. And, you know, the part that interests me, um, and yes, we'll do Class C later, uh, but it's the part that interests me is when someone says only. You right. know, like OJ, OJ has only killed two people, allegedly. Um, not so bad, right? That's only two more than the average person. But that, that sometimes doesn't cut it, right? Uh, right? Sometimes two is too many. And, and there's no discussion about why that could even happen. And I'll tell you why there was no discussion about why that could even happen. Because as you said, Jamie, that blows up the narrative. Because all of a sudden, it's not Andy Dukin rushing. All of a sudden, yeah. it's, it's people emailing each other about, should we keep doing this? And then you say, well, of course, this was just Hinton, right? Not the state police. And then you come across emails where the state police are coaching each other on how to create this uh, 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 Byzantine logic of how any drug can be classy. And you realize this is a huge problem. Uh, and, uh, and so w- let's just say, oh, it was a couple of drugs, no big deal. Exactly, because they didn't want it. What it does, it, it, it shows people the existence of a rabbit hole, right? 
there is a rabbit hole that um, for the classification of drugs that indicates that I call it a rabbit hole because we don't know how far down it goes and we don't know what it entails or what, but we know that at least classy was being used because class, the way that these labs tested classy drugs was to look at them and then to look up what they thought the markings on the pills or whatever the class, the supposed classy drug was in a book or online to certify quote, quote unquote, certify what those drugs were. Right. So there was no real validated approach to do that. And it was a very convenient way for them to throw into a bucket all of the things that these labs did not understand. And if it was a real lab that cared about science, they would have said, we don't understand this. And they would have stood up in court and said, we don't understand. We don't know what these drugs were. We, it was inconclusive. It had these markings. We think it might be this. But you can't say we think it might be this in court because you'll get ripped apart. And they knew that. So they knew Class E didn't really have to have any scientific justification behind it outside of a acknowledgement that it was, you know, found somewhere. And it's, as Luke Ryan pointed out, this is a confidence scheme. No one really challenged them a lot of the times on this stuff. And they knew that. So they would just say, hey, this salt, this drug it has come in, these bath salts have come in, and these are just we know that these aren't scheduled in Massachusetts, so they're not illegal to possess. But the prosecutor says that these guys are really bad guys and they need to go to jail, so let's just call this a class C. And the fact that they were doing that, and we have evidence that they were doing that, uh, calls into question not only these criminal prosecutions, but like it calls into question absolutely everything that's being done in this, a lot of what's being done in the state. If they're willing to to put people in jail for things they know to not be illegal, what else are they doing, right? That's why I call it a rabbit hole. And and I guess also my favorite why question. I mean, you know, I I would love to um, uh, work for the OIG, uh, and I would have a little sign on my desk uh, and I'd be the director of why. <laughs> and that would be all I do is I just, I, I read something and then I just ask why and let's get uh, the answer. And I, it just seems like that, that never occurred to anybody to ask why, why well, did they misclassify BZP? Why did they do multi-run samples? Why did they fail to disclose that to prosecutors? Why was Annie Duke not the only chemist involved in these uh, uh, um, erroneous uh, outcomes? Um, yeah. Why, why were they joking in emails about sending people to prison? Why, were they, why did the Hinton Lab and other chemists know all of the criminal charges that were being um, put against the people whose evidence they were testing? Why didn't they contact a lawyer from DPA <laughs> and say, uh, you know, we have these drugs, we're not entirely sure under the statute if we should classify it as E or not. What do we do instead of <laughs> instead of Dukin and Ferret emailing each other and coming up with sort of the the whole labs uh, strategy going forward for both labs? Right. How could they not have a how could how could the leadership not have a program in place for this? Because it it we have evidence that this had been happening at least since two thousand and four. Right. That's when that's that's the earliest email about classy stuff that I have seen. I don't know if you guys have seen anything earlier than that, but at least since 2004, they have um, 
had a problem with, you know, figuring out what this stuff was. And to me, it's like, of course, you know, if you're taking random drugs off the street, of course, there's going to be questionable shit that you come across. It's not, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. It's, it's just random stuff coming in from, you know, people selling drugs illegally. So of course there's going to be random stuff. They should have you know, a procedure or process in place to do that. And ironically, the state police did have a procedure and process in place and they ignored it. They ignored their own procedure to break the law and, um, and send people to jail uh, for things that they knew not to be illegal, which is crazy. And again, not being reported anywhere besides here. Well, maybe there's an OIG report forthcoming on that. Yeah, it will. <laughs> 20 years later. The version, minute, it's on version 17. That's right. The minute uh, Glenn retires, that all this stuff is going to come out. It's just as long as his pension is safe. Um, the o, So here's what Nathan writes. I'm just going to do some reading here and feel free to interrupt me, guys. Uh, the OIG's report describes a pool of samples that were analyzed on the GCMS by the Hinton Lab more than once. The results of these tests were collected and reviewed by the OIG because they felt that the defendants in these cases should have been notified and provided with the data in their case. The OIG states that almost 11,000 samples had this type of inconsistency in the testing procedures and reporting and that these issues were concerning enough to warrant a careful review of all documentation related to them. After this review, the OIG still had serious concerns about the accuracy and reliability of the results in 3,980 of them. The OIG found these concerns were serious enough to warrant retesting. Okay, right there. Um, like, doesn't that show that the lab is completely incompetent? Does, does that, is that what that, that's what that says to me. Does that say that to you guys? Can, can you make that blanket statement with just that? Uh, well, you can, you, I mean, incompetent is an interesting word because um, a lot of people are incompetent, but really are doggone it. They're trying their best. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and some people are, are incompetent um, and, um, and there's sort of a rationale behind it. And, and I would say, regardless of which, let's say, side of the political spectrum you're on, I think it's suffice to say that if you're on either side of the political spectrum, then you're very familiar with the idea of sort of um, incompetence that goes beyond um, uh, best intentions, because you're going to accuse the other side always of having a malevolent incompetence, right? That's pretty much the narrative that each side accuses the other one of. So that's what that's the concern here is, you know, is it, what's driving what? Is it the, the, a, a bad, uh, bad faith that is per permitting incompetence to, uh, to subsist? Uh, or is the incompetence so prevalent that the good faith people kind of just throw their hands up in the air and, and, and walk away? Uh, and I think that's the, that's the question I'd like to see answered. Um, and I think there are a few people that you could really have talked to uh, about that um, and uh, because they're uh, the ones that seem to have been caught up in the middle of, of this, this divide. And I'm thinking of, you know, Mr. Salemi, um, I'm thinking of um, Mr. Pirro Lawler. and Mr. Lawler, 
And I think really sitting down and, and probing what was going on, like, why, why did you feel powerless? What was driving this supreme incompetence? And really work up the chain of command. And that apparently no one seemed to think it was even important to sit down with Nassif and kind of, you know, with a bright light on her face uh, in a windowless room and sort of ask her lots of questions. Right. I mean, number one in my mind would be like, what were the prosecutors telling you? Like, did did anyone ever tell you to, you know, make sure that there was a desired outcome in a test? And then you get all of her emails and you, you know, hold her accountable to what she said to the prosecutors. And, you know, it goes right down the line. But it's like, it wasn't even that nefarious because Dukin was very, very blatant about how she felt. And she's, by the way, she is one of the only one. The reason I say Dukin is because I've just seen a ton of her emails. If I saw, if I had access to, you know, Nasif's inbox, I'm sure I would see the same thing. I'm sure, you know, that, that they, as they say, the corpse rots from the head down. And uh, I'm sure that there is a mentality within the lab that it was, um, you know, like the, the conviction was the, the priority and not scientific in, integrity. Uh, and that bears out in the uh, 96% positive rate that the Hinton Lab had. Uh, the OIG's retesting efforts stemmed from the OIG's concern for the accuracy of testing results for samples that the Hinton Drug Lab had repeatedly tested with, and there it is, you know, all they were concerned about was the retest with inc- inconsistent results, but had reported only the final result to the parties in the resulting criminal case. Now that right there, the fact that they tested it a bunch of times and only reported the final positive result, i.e. the desired result, uh, to the defendant and to you know the defense attorneys and sometimes to the prosecutors as well. Like they didn't know it was being retested a million times, I'm sure. Like that right there, um, shows intent, right? I mean, if this was real scientific testing, they would show all of their work and say, hey, this sample gave us a lot of trouble. Here's how we came to the conclusion. If you have any questions, let us know. They they buried all of their work and just gave the final result. Right. Um, the OIG, therefore, retested only those samples that resulted in an adverse disposition to a criminal defendant. <laughs> retesting all of the Hinton Drug Lab samples or even all of the samples on the OIG's retest list would have been prohibitively expensive. Wow. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, cost trumps justice, right? They, they said it right there. Well, you, you, when, it, when it goes the wrong, when the arrow goes the wrong way. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I um, you know, was struck by how much uh, of, of the budget um, directs money to things that maybe aren't as important. Um, you know, my, my, I think I read somewhere that that a lot of the DPH budget was thrown at anti-terrorism um, uh, uh, endeavors. Uh, and so nobody had any objection throwing that kind of money around at a problem which I think has never materialized, right? I, I think the DPH has never tested a, um, a, a, a weapon of any sort. Uh, no. I think somebody said that. They found yeah. that all they, they found, found was some old, old 
Yeah. yeah, old, unexploded World War II ordinance is the best, the closest that DPH has, has come. And yet they, they probably had millions thrown in that direction. So when the government wants to um, have a pet project, they have no problem throwing millions at it. But when, there's, when the project is, let's make sure that the innocent don't go to prison, suddenly everyone looks in their pockets and doesn't have any money. Yeah, and, you know, another thing that they could have done, so if they, they found 11,000 samples that had this inconsistency and they realized that, you know, the full test results from all the tests hadn't been provided to these defendants and they were worried about costs to their office, so they only selected, you know, a handful of them, they still should have notified the defendants so defendants could go back in court and then file a motion for funds to have uh, their samples retested. It comes out of, I mean, like it, in a broad sense, it's all government money, but it, the state legislature allocates different amounts of money to different places. And there's a totally separate amount of funds for indigent criminal defendants to get court money uh, as opposed to however much is earmarked for the OIG's budget. So isn't it a Brady violation, Chris? I mean, well, it has to be um, exculpatory. I mean, like it's a I mean, it should be I I think it's a rule 14 violation, because if they're running all these tests and they only produce a part of it and there were, you know, uh, actual results that they had on pieces of paper sitting at the lab and didn't provide it, that's a problem under rule 14. And then if it's. you know, uh, exculpatory or potentially exculpatory, that's a Brady problem. And it seems like the vast majority of these uh, likely were because when they have inconsistent results, you're thinking the first one is probably negative and they tried to clean up the sample and then, uh, right. you know, run it through again. So a first test saying negative is certainly uh, Brady material that should have been turned over. I think we discussed... Uh, Previously, there may be some totally innocuous reasons for retest, like if they see there's mechanical failure um, and like the GCMS machine, the injector needle broke and the whole run didn't go all the way through and nothing was produced. Okay, you know, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a Brady violation if they don't tell you that that happened. They probably should anyway, but... um, Yeah, they should at least because that, that could, I mean, that could have an impact on the testing, right? Yeah. So anyway, um, but, uh, just but just to to because I think the listener may not intuitively understand Brady the way Chris you do, but um, let me boil Brady down to the simplest uh, thing that everybody will get. Okay, you're accused of murder, and the the government's ev- sole evidence against you is your neighbor, who said I saw the whole thing, and Chris Post walked out and killed that person. And then somewhere in the government file, the neighbor also says, oh, I wasn't there that week. I was in Florida. That's exculpatory evidence. Now, does that mean you're innocent? Not necessarily. It might mean that the person was mixed up about which day they were in Florida. But that's exculpatory evidence, because if that's true, that person didn't see anything. And the, and the government gets routinely tripped up with eyewitness testimony because witnesses say all sorts of things. And that's a real problem. And, and uh, I'm thinking of the Sean Ellis case as a paradigm uh, example of, of where exculpatory evidence is things that come out of someone's mouth. Um, but here, it's, it comes out of a machine. 
And if a machine ran, was run more than once, and, and Chris, you may be right, maybe there was a, a, an error, although I would be surprised if there were that many times that a Right, definitely not wrong. a rogue thousand. Yeah, that, that's, that's another problem that probably um, <laughs> uh, should have been investigated. But um, here you have a machine who has no incentive to lie telling you different things. To me, that's the definition of exculpatory evidence. You don't, and and the and the point of Brady is so that the defendant can have all the facts that are relevant presented in his or her defense to a jury. That's the point of Brady. It's it, it's it's sort of like the thing that glues our constitution together. Because if you get rid of Brady, our constitution is sort of meaningless. Because yeah, you're innocent until the government fabricates the evidence that proves you guilty. Doesn't sound very good. Right. And that's the most terrifying thing that that is why this case absolutely terrifies me. And we and, you know, I mean, not to get into this, but like the vaccine thing. Right. Everyone is going vaccines. They you know, this is a violation of, you know, this is an overreach of government and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, whether or not that's true, like that, that's debatable as a debate for another show, another, you know, whatever. But right here we have the government you know, literally locking people in jail for crimes they know they didn't commit or things that weren't even crimes that they know weren't crimes, throwing people in jail for them and literally no one cares. It's amazing. It, it absolutely I, I, it boggles my mind. Right. You're saying, I, I guess what you're saying is uh, for the people who are, seem, uh, who are outraged by things going on today, where's the outrage for, for this? Right. And, and you know, like, I, I saw someone on Twitter bring up stop and frisk, you know, like that's something where the police can literally just stop you and search you for no, like with no justification, just because they want to, you know, like things like that are way well, more problematic than, in my opinion, than vaccine mandates. And well, it's not that they can just do that. I mean, that's illegal if they don't have any reason, but the problem is like New York had that as their policy to just stop and frisk people without, um, reasonable suspicion or probable cause, they just would stop people at random or, or because they were a certain skin color. Right. Right. So not at random. Right. <laughs> I, think, I think the statistics show that it was uh, not surprisingly heavily weighted um, towards uh, people of color. Right. And so stop and frisk is really, you know, stop and frisk people of color. Right. And, and they and, do and, that here too. They might not have the the stated policy that they had in New York, but here that definitely happens in Massachusetts, in you know lower income, mostly minority neighborhoods. That is a thing, and it's it's something that is incredibly problematic. And I think people only really care about stuff that affects them, and that's the problem. Like there's an empathy gap in this country where you know all of these government over like these people that scream about the government do not care about documented things that the government does to violate people's rights because it happens to people that they also don't care about right. and that's the, the real the, problem the best example that we're, we're sort of now going sideways i think but the best example i can think of is the charles stewart case right which in boston had, was one of the most singular and 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 definable assault on civil liberties that has occurred uh where essentially uh, i mean i'm not i don't think i'm exaggerating chris correct me if i'm wrong but almost any male of color in the mission hill area was essentially 
uh, detained and searched and interrogated um, and sometimes subjected to very um, uh, questionable coercive techniques uh, to, uh, designed to extract confessions, so much so that actually people who didn't do it confessed to the crime. Uh, and all, after all of that, it turns out that that old Chucky Stewart was the one who shot his wife in the stomach. And then uh, as part of some insurance scheme that he was going to run off uh, with uh, his, his um, mistress. Um, and he ended up th- tossing himself off the Tobin Bridge. Uh, where was any uh, real outrage, you know, and any enduring reform um, as a result of that? I mean, it's hard to see. So I think as long as this type of thing keeps happening to communities of color, I think there's a there's a nice compartmentalization and the average person doesn't worry. And I think the question is, when does this spill over to the point where it becomes a problem for every, um, let's, I'll just be blunt, every white person? Right. When, when, does that, when does that become the issue for everybody? Right. And you'd think it would be budgetary and the amount of money they spend on this nonsense. I mean, we've talked about the $100 million before that has been spent to cover up the Dukin stuff and to litigate and to do all of their report, meaningless reports and all of this, the crap that they've used to, to come up with a justification for what they did, for what these labs were really doing and hiding the truth from the public. That is a sin and a crime. And, and now, nowadays, when we talk about budgets and you know there's not enough money for X and there's not enough money for Y, but there's always enough money for, you know, to lock people in prison. And it, that should really, really be looked at. And when, you know, people talk about defund the police, this is exactly what I'm thinking of when I think defund the police, because this hundred, imagine what could have been done with this hundred million dollars. If, if they just came out and told the truth, rather than do all of these phony baloney investigations and all of this litigation, if they just dismissed every case, told the truth about these labs, Imagine what could have been done with that $100 million in these communities. That's the bottom line for me. All right. It says here, the final conclusion of an acceptable level of accuracy was undoubtedly deeply affected by the selection process of samples. This is Nathan talking now. One cannot scientifically or statistically justify discarding numerous samples that you have found to have questionable results and then claim the much smaller number you did look at our indicative of the question result. <laughs> the, the criteria that the OIG used in many cases were not related to testing accuracy. The testing of samples that the OIG claimed had no adverse legal consequences, for example, might still very well be deeply flawed and inaccurate. That is entirely the point. You right. can't just toss those out and say, "Oh, yeah, they didn't." You know, they didn't have any legal consequences. It doesn't matter what the lab did to them because it, you know, there was no legal con. Bullshit! You're telling us that these samples were all accurate and the, and there was nothing wrong with the testing when you didn't even test the samples that you said had problems. Uh, just, it's maddening. Right. It, you know, uh, I'm going to probably end up dating myself here, but um, if you're a baseball fan, you know, there was a time when you would open up the Globe or something, and they would have these like. Uh, tables of statistics um, and they would break the statistics down um, for, at least for baseball teams records by uh, night games versus day games and turf versus grass. And I always found that interesting and I would study it and I would notice that if you actually looked at, for example, turf games 
um, uh, you know, during the day. It's a very small number. And but one team is going to have a wildly better record than another team in that regard. But you would never say that the you know um, that the Cincinnati Reds were the best team of the '90s because they were twenty and two in day games on turf, right? Like right. that's that's you've you've excluded not only a lot of the majority of the data, but you've excluded actually a lot of the data that really matters, which is, you know, for example, you know, where their home field was or, well, I think that for some time they did play on turf, but they did play but on anyway, turf. the point is you're, 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 you're shrinking the number artificially. If you want to know who the best team in baseball is, you look at the record of all the games, right? If you want to know whether a lab did a good job or a bad job, you look at all the samples. You don't start like, you know, doing, um, the, you know, the clown car music math that we talked about before, where you start coming up with excuses to shrink the number. It, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. And they have been allowed by the media and by, you know, lawmakers, by everyone um, to get away with it. No one has questioned this. This is like, this is the first, Nathan is questioning it. We are questioning it. And that's about it. You know, they did a whole documentary on this case on Netflix. This was never brought up. They didn't even mention the OIG reports or anything about it. And there are so many fundamental errors in these reports that it is, it's just, it's sickening. All right. So, and Nathan says, this is the fundamental flaw of the entire endeavor. They intentionally select a few, uh, uh, they intentionally selected as few a number of samples as they could based on some idea of reduced cost or even a, a prejudicial view of the potential result, uh, retesting results, explicitly refusing to retest residue samples as they could potentially be negative. I mean, come on. <laughs> they even say it there. Uh, this selection occurred in various ways, some logical and some troubling. The supplemental report does not adequately cover the methodology of this reduction and does not consider this reduction in its conclusions. What's more, defendants whose samples had results that the OIG found questionable were not selected for retesting, um, but were not selected for retesting, were not informed of the issue discovered in their case. <laughs> right. I mean, like, it, like I said before, if they were worried about money, I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't still let defendants know and have them try and figure out if they could have their sample retested using court funds. Right. Right. Like they could, they could go that way, but they didn't want that. That was the whole point. That's what I think that's what Nathan's getting at. And that's what I'm getting at certainly. And, you know, I'll, I'll let you guys speak for yourselves, but they wanted, you know, they didn't, they wanted everything swept under the rug. They wanted a, a flimsy scientific excuse to say that the Hinton uh, labs testing was a okay, and let's mo- let's all move on, people. Nothing to see here. Um, so it's, it says retesting revisited. Uh, there are a great number of concerns regarding the retesting of the Hinton samples. The initial report in March 2004 describes 2,337 samples to be reanalyzed by uh, Ra- Raman Spectrograph. Uh, I don't know if they also do noodles, but anyways, a- after removing 650 that were destroyed in normal course of business, um, this was then winnowed down to 
1,203 samples because the balance, 1,134 samples, had hidden findings that were not in the Raman spectrographs library and could not be adequately screened. Of the 1,203 samples, 739 samples had a Raman screaming result consistent with the Hinton findings, and 464 samples that had results inconsistent with the Hinton lab's findings that were uh, then sent to be retested. A portion of a memo that CPCS Forensics wrote regarding the retesting portion of the OIG's first report is included as attachment A. Okay, I shouldn't have read that. (laughs) Importantly, (laughs) there is no background on the Raman spectrograph used in the screening done by the OIG. Uh, No methodology or protocol is described. No mention is made of who did the retesting or by what standard the result will be judged. Further, the fates of the individual samples are not discussed. It is an open question of how many of the 464 samples that were nominally found to be inconsistent with the hidden results or how many of the 1,134 samples that had library issues were retested by NMS labs. This is vital information as it is required to assess the reliability of Raman screening results, and even more importantly, will directly impact an assessment of the OIG sample selection process. So number one, the sample selection process was BS. (laughs) Can I uh, share a story real quick? Please do. Yeah, so, um, you know, it was talking about, um, Nathan was mentioning how they don't really explain the methodology of using the Rayman spectroscopy. And the listener might be thinking, well, you know, these are scientists, they know what they're doing. And admittedly, the OIG did, uh, you know, hire consultants with, uh, you know, uh, lengthy backgrounds in the field. So I, I'm assuming that was likely done correctly. But, you know, I've seen instances where you would be floored because the people who you think are competent in this are actually not. I remember. I was sitting in Marlboro District Court waiting for my case to be called, and I saw there was a motion to suppress going on, and the police department had just gotten these true Thermo Fisher TrueNARC handheld Rayman um, spectrometers, and uh, the attorney got out uh, on cross that he had never been trained on how to use it and never even read the instructions. <laughs> <laughs> oh my think, god you know, if you were sitting in a jury i mean like if the, that attorney hadn't figured it out and he was allowed to testify that you know i used this in order to run a test and i it, the machine came back with such and such a drug the jury would be like oh well you know it's a police officer he's probably trained in all this he probably knows what he's talking about but no <laughs> no <laughs> so That's why, like, documentation counts. You have to have training reports. You have to have, okay, how were they trained? And what methodology methodology was used? That's what Nathan is getting at here. Yeah, so so I'm not as concerned because, you know, they hired that consultant from the FBI who audited labs previously, and I'm assuming they were involved. But, like, it would be very helpful to make that more clear, um, as Nathan points out. Yeah. And when we assume, you know, I mean, there's that old saying, obviously, but when I assumed or we were told to assume that the state police are the pinnacle of drug lab testing, right? 
they they do not make errors and they have a certified lab that is, you know, top notch. And we come to find out that they were fudging stuff just like Hinton and Amherst. So, uh, well, in terms of the Class E stuff. So it's, you could be as, you know, on board and whatever as, as you know, you, you pass, you work for the FBI, you've done all these lab investigations, fine. But show us how you did it. Show us what you did. Show us your documentation. If you're hiding or reluctant to show any of that stuff, that means you're hiding something and then you go in for the kill. I've, I've worked in QA for almost 20 years for, you know, various um, biotech companies. And I've done a number of these kind of audits. And you can tell when people are, are screwing around because they aren't honest up front. All of the companies that aren't doing anything don't give a crap if you look at their books. They don't care if you know all of their methodologies. They give you everything up front because they have nothing to hide. And um, I think that's the point. Uh, I mean, they like to your point, Chris, they, this, this place may have been totally above board, but if we don't have the documentation, we don't know what methodologies they followed, then to me, everything's questionable. And it would have been interesting to TrueNARC, I mean, if you love TrueNARC, um, it would have been interesting to TrueNARC the, the samples that were, um, let's say, 500 samples that weren't multi-run. Right. right. That the, where's the harm in that? To val- to val- if you love true narc. Yeah, if it's so accurate. It's cost-effective. You could true narc everything. And, the, and did you see that they dismissed all those cases because they were true narced? It's like, well, then why not just go to the ones that, you know, like true narc at all? Don't skip over right. anything if, it, if it's so reliable. All right. right it's, yeah. or mo- if, what's that? It reminds me of a, a, a really bad book I once read about a guy who claims that he took a breathalyzer test to a bar and, and hilarity ensued where everybody's drinking and then trying to see what their number is. Um, <laughs> the, the idea being there's no real limit on how many breathalyzer tests you can take, right? right. You could, um, so the same thing with a true narc. I mean, my understanding is you could, you could pretty much true narc stuff all day long. Um, without uh, uh, too much difficulty. So that, that would have been a neat experiment to see how many un, you know, single-run samples could be confirmed through TrueNARC. If many or most of the samples, the, the Raman... Uh, how do you pronounce that, by the way? Is it Rayman? Rayman, but I could be mistaken. Rainman? I, I think <laughs> so. Like, uh, Starring Dustin Hoffman? Um, so if... Sunglasses. <laughs> Let me see. If many or most of the Rayman um, found to be inconsistent uh, were sent to NMS and they then confirmed those samples to be what Hinton said they were, the Rayman is not a reliable screening method. If few to none of the samples found to be inconsistent by the scan were actually retested, the OIG selection process will be uh, demonstrably biased. Over multiple runs on the GCMS, these samples were found to be inconsistent results at the Hinton lab and then had further inconsistent results from the Rayman uh, screening. If one is going to if one is going to claim to be assessing the overall reliability of the lab, all of these samples need to be retested. They cannot be dismissed by claiming that they were residues, degraded, you know, whatever, or lacked con- 
uh, consequence within indicating a bias in a single selection. I mean, that I, we've made that point over and over and over, and it is a completely valid point that the OIG is responsible for answering to. Because if they are going to say that there is reliability and it's based on a tiny sample size, then that is total BS. It is the impression of the first report that all of the 1,598 samples selected by the OIG were to be retested in some fashion. The OIG is now in the process of sending the samples that TrueNARC identified as inconclusive and inconsistent, as well as the samples that could not be tested with the TrueNARC due to library issues, to an accredited independent laboratory out of state. This testing should determine the accuracy of the drug lab's findings with respect to the multi-run samples. This is clearly not what happened, as only 609 samples were retested. So right there, the original OIG report, they were lying, or they didn't, you know, they didn't, and they never corrected that in the supplemental report. So they said they were going to do something, and they only did a small portion of it, which is crazy. Well, or... I mean, you know, uh, uh, we're taking, I guess, the report at face value, or there was a larger number tested and somebody didn't like the results. Yeah. I mean, and they picked you know. up the, the rug and just swept them right under and moved along because <laughs> clearly we're the only ones who care about this crap. Um, according to the supplemental report issued in February 2nd of 2016, in March of 2014, after the OIG published their report, they received notice of another 12,000 160 potential multi-run samples. This claimed to be the result of the discovery of non-electric scanned hard copy GCMS reports in the Navigant database, which suggested the existence of additional GCMS runs for samples previously understood to have been run only one time. This is at odds with the first report. In a footnote, the original report, uh, the OIG concludes... As of March 2014, the OIG continues to receive documents in response to outstanding requests. In fact, despite DPH's efforts to review the enormous quantity of electronic data from the years 2002 to 2012, which, by the way, again, is BS. <laughs> they, if, this, if they were really going to assess this lab, they would do it for the entire life of the lab, right? not just when Dukin worked there, to ensure that they had not released, um, they had not released uh, to the OIG records related to another DPH laboratory or that are subject to its claim of attorney-client pro attorney privilege, DPH still has over 200,000 electronic documents to review. According to DPH, the documents to be reviewed are extremely unlikely to contain information that is of significance to the OIG's investigation, quote. <laughs> Again, yeah, according to the DPH. <laughs> so there, don't worry, OIG. We'll we'll just let you know that these don't mean anything to you. I, I'm um, always amazed at how people know in advance that something is or is not likely to have relevant information. I mean, uh, pretty much my my daily activity is looking at uh, information, trying to figure out if it's relevant or not. Right, and, and there's no correlation between what I think in advance might have relevant information and where I end up finding relevant information. Um, I mean, if that were the case, you wouldn't really need in the civil world uh, discovery tools because you'd sort of already know what you're looking for. 
um, and you just get it. And 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 it's it, it sort of like Scooby Doo. It would be like a, a, a an envelope that has the word clue on the outside, and you'd know before you opened it. This is a clue. Um, uh, it doesn't work that way. You got to sift through everything, and this sort of is reminiscent a little bit of the Comey uh, Anthony Weiner issue, which is uh, how could you go in in a couple of months from saying my investigation is done and there is no evidence to a month later? Oh, by the way, I just discovered a whole computer that might have stuff on it, and that might change the outcome of the election. Um, but you won't know until after the election, right? That, I mean, it's sort of like, which is it? If you have 200,000 more things to look at, why am I reading your report? Right. And well, here, here it comes. And this dovetails beautifully into what you're saying, Ilias. Somehow, it appears these 200,000 electronic documents stated to be likely insignificant to the investigation contain more potential multi-run samples. Samples results that were of great import to the investigation and had their own section of the report that um, then the other 3.5 million pages in the consolidated review database. <laughs> so 3.5, the, the 200,000 pages that they said had nothing had more stuff that was significant to the report so much so that it was referenced in the actual end report more than 3.5 million documents that that were also reviewed that were said to be significant like that is crazy clearly right. they were and, oh go ahead yeah well there's a there's another i mean again this is sort of maybe a pet um interest of mine i think chris you're a little more um realistic and grounded on this issue but from from my personal experience um i was sort of struck by the fact that a lot of these printouts uh, of results are uh, because of the uh, a sample was run through what they call the standalone GC, um, and I'm very interested in that because that the use of a standalone GC is described nowhere. It's described nowhere. It's not part of the lab uh, uh, SOP. Uh, it's when Annie Dukin or, um, or or in my case Daniel Renchkowski or any other chemist. I mean, you could read all the transcripts. Kate Corbett. Um, did anyone ever say, you know, sometimes begin a sentence with, well, here's what we do, but then sometimes for reasons that are unknown to anybody else, we decide to run it through the standalone GC that doesn't produce a, a digital uh, archive of the test, uh, just a printout. And, we, and for what purpose do we use it for? Well, in the case of my client, what was done was it was run, Annie Dukin ran it through the standalone GC and proved what... It, the thing actually was. So I'm not critical of the use of a standalone GC. It's it's sort of like seeing the, the results of the SAT test before you take it. If someone gave you the, 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 the test answers before the test, you would absolutely look at it because you'd want to know. So supposedly the GC gives you a free freebie, free look at what this thing is, and then a piece of paper that, that you could either file or throw away. And yet uh, in, in this case, it proved that it wasn't a drug. And yet somehow it, uh, the sample then is still multi-run instead of ending the inquiry altogether. And no one has explained that. No one has explained why there was, I mean, it's not like nobody saw Annie Dukin using this standalone GC, right? It, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, Chris, it's a big machine and you know the, the, it's in a well-lit room and, and it, it, the machine makes noise. I mean, it's not like you, she went into like some corner hallway and and was doing this um, sort of the way that Farak was supposedly, um, you know, huffing uh, lab samples. 
Um, so why was this machine used? Why was it generating paper-only records? Where were those paper-only records going? I mean, to me, that should have been itself another leg of this investigation. Instead, they just kind of blow it off. And that's um, surprising. Like it wasn't some secret they had it or used it. I mean, the problem was you said it wasn't part of their standard operating procedure. The problem was they didn't actually have formal written standard operating procedures. So you have all these machines at the lab and different chemists and different levels of training on them. And people were just sort of winging it. Um, and so if, if that's how the whole lab operates, you're going to come out with different results. Some chemists are going to retain more records than others because they're not required to retain everything. Um, anyway. it, it contradicts the dry labbing narrative, right? The dry labbing narrative is, you skip step one, which is super time consuming and messy, involves like little um, droplets of, of, of reagents. Um, and uh, and you just go straight to step two, which is the GCMS. And the idea was Annie Dukin was rushing and there was a backlog and Melendez Diaz was wrongly decided, all that stuff, right? But yet now we hear that Annie Dukin and possibly only Annie Dukin, but I think Annie Dukin and others are actually taking more time to load samples, you know, to prepare aliquots and load them into the standalone machine for a, a step of the testing that's not described in anyone's testimony. No one says sometimes we do a, a, a third middle step that we don't tell you about um, called the standalone GC. And that's not consistent with dry labbing. That's not consistent with rushing. That's not consistent with anything that we've been told. Uh, and so what was this thing used for? Why was it being used? And why, why does it seem to have been used uh, in, 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 in my limited experience on problematic samples? So these are samples that right off the bat, you thought, uh, I don't think that's drugs. Um, and to me, the fact that it produces a paper-only record is a little bit suspicious because if you get a result you don't like, I mean, I don't know where that piece of paper goes. Right. Right. I mean, it's um, more than a little suspicious, I'd say. Yeah. So anyway, we don't want to, I don't want to beat no. that dead horse, but that just seems to me to have been a matter that it should have been hugely important to the OIG, hugely important uh, because it really challenges all of the assumptions that were brought into the investigation. And it certainly challenges the conclusion that came out of the investigation. Agreed. Um, so additional multi-run samples, first reduction. The uh, OIG states that it discarded 10,822 of these 12,160 samples, or 89% of them, as yeah. not truly multi-run samples. Without giving criteria, explicit criteria or methodology by which it accomplished this, it is important to consider the original OIG report had put the 9,483 multi-run samples it had found into eight categories and quantified the number of multi-run samples in each. The original OIG report then discussed the review that each category received and why certain uh, numbers of samples were eliminated. The expounded methodology in the first report was also rather inadequately described as discussed previously. <clears throat> Um, but the supplemental report is even less detailed 
and even less defensible in his description of the methodology used. Rather than use the same structure and methodology it described as having applied to the first group of multi-run samples, it merely lists a few examples of some potential reasons that the apparent existence of multi-run samples, including duplicate copies of the same GCMS reports, reports of preliminary testing on the gas uh, uh, chromograph instrument, uh, instances in which the GCMS was run overnight, creating the appearance of of testing on two separate dates, typographical errors on the GCMS reports, which to me is... Anyways, a a misread of uh, by Navigant's computer search tool of the number of scanned PDF file. What's that? Oh, okay. An external request for uh, a retest, for instance, by a defense attorney that took place months or years after the original testing. There are no qualifications. there are no quantifications associated with any of the given reasons, nor is it said to be a complete list. The list is given as mere examples of reasons a sample might have multi-runs. Indeed, just reading that last example, um, an external request for a retest that took place months or years after the original test date seems to indicate that perhaps only a signal single example from the list of 10,822 samples met this criteria. (laughs) That is ridiculous. Even if there are, even if there were more than one example of the exclusion based on the criteria, uh, judging by chemist testimony and analysis records regarding requests for retesting by the defense attorney, it would it would make it very minimal contribution to the elimination of multi-run samples from the list, right? They don't, and yeah, they don't give a number uh, with those samples. They just give excuses as to why some of these samples weren't eliminated, but they didn't say, hey, this amount had this, this amount had this. Yeah, it it bespeaks a phobia of retesting, which I just don't understand. And it reminds me of a former president of this country who blamed the pandemic not on uh, a virus, but on the fact that the the, the U.S. Or was te- quote, testing too much, <laughs> and that we could solve the problem by simply not testing. I mean, did that thought cross anyone's mind at OIG? Let's just not retest anything, and then there was no problem. Yeah, it's too problematic to test stuff. It's it's coming back with stuff that we don't want to see. Well, I mean, and they're obviously searching for reasons not to, right? I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, I mean. If- if I was investigating, you know, I would be fairly interested in the ones where, you know, defense attorneys actually were able to get funds for retesting. I mean, that's, I mean, that happens occasionally, but most frequently happens where, you know, the, the client is telling the attorney, like, uh, either I know that wasn't drugs at all, or uh, I had drugs, but it's totally different from what the lab said and uh we need to do something right like those i mean that's a pretty strong indicator if the defense attorney went to the trouble of getting another expert to have something retested i I mean why wouldn't the oig be interested in those cases right It, it, it you know again i try to use real world examples so that people can kind of understand this um uh, people probably remember Lance Armstrong, you know, it was a feel good story. This was a cancer survivor who went on to be like the world's best cyclist of all time. And for years, the French claimed that he was doping and he denied it. And he'd get out indignant and outraged. 
And then there, you started to hear that people were testing his, quote, B samples. And what that is, is at the end of a race, the, the a cyclist gives two samples, an A sample and a B sample. And the B sample is locked away for future use only if the A sample comes back positive. And Lance Armstrong had figured out how to defeat the test so that his A samples always came back negative. So no one ever had a protocol-based reason to open his B sample. But I think somebody in France probably was like, well, screw the rules. Let's just look at his B sample. And they found with superior testing that he was doping. So the French were certain he was doping and he denied it. And then lo and behold, one day it becomes clear that he was doping and using masking agents. And the answer was available the whole time in the B sample. Well, here, the B sample is the all of the samples that have ever gone through Hinton Lab. You could have retested all of them. There was no reason to be phobic of retesting anything. If you have not, as you said, Jamie, if you have nothing to hide, invite the retest. If you have something to hide, then come up with reasons to exclude uh, an entire swath of samples. Right. I mean, or if you don't have the money to retest everything, vacate the convictions and dismiss the cases. Exactly. That is the only way, Chris. That is, and, and honestly, all of this retesting is stupid anyways. They, they were, clearly this lab was massively, in, either massively incompetent. I mean, that's what I would want to know. Are, were they incompetent or were they being egged on to do this stuff? Were, they, were, were there good people in there who were trying to do the testing and were getting railroaded by a system that was just corrupt? Or was the lab just completely incompetent? Those were the answers I would want, but I wouldn't want to spend any money trying to figure it's that out. Here, here's a question for Chris, because um, I don't, I, I don't have insight into this. Um, but ha have you personally ever had, or are you aware of any cases where a person is arrested and the police sees a sample, send it to the lab, and the lab comes back and says, "Not a drug," and mm -hmm. that's the end of the story. I'm not saying out of six samples, one was not a drug, because I know that happens. Uh, I'm saying that there was a, a one. Uh, sample or whatever the number of samples all came back negative. And so basically what Hinton said is this guy can go free. To your knowledge, did that ever happen? Because I think that would have been where I would have started. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, out of the course of the past 10 years, I think I've seen that more than once, but less than five times, I would say. So in very, very, very few. In 10 yeah. years, less than five times? I think so. Because I think that's the issue because the, we, we know there's, a, there's disparate estimates. The FBI said, I think, somewhere between 5 and 10% of, of seized narcotics or, well, seized substances are not actually illegal drugs. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, based on some anecdotal um, um, insight, if that number is actually much higher. Because, again, you know, just like um, um, my client, uh, the thought occurred to him uh, and other people who use, quote, cutting agents... Um, you know, you can you can sell uh, protein powder uh, uh, as heroin and make a pretty pretty good profit. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and so why wouldn't that be very common for people to be walking around with little baggies that don't have drugs in it? Yeah, let, let me back up for a second. I thought so. The question as to what I've seen personally in cases, either in mine specifically or when I'm sort of in the courthouse waiting for a case to be called, that's less than five, but. There was this whole other negative drug cert issue where we found several hundred that the people 
pled out early and they were never told that their samples had tested negative. So, you know, that actually, I mean, years after the fact, some of those people were notified. I think Norfolk uh, County did a really good job. Middlesex County also did a good job. And Suffolk County wanted to vacate convictions in over 60 cases and they were running into procedural hurdles to get that done. So, you know, I, I have seen more instances where, <laughs> you know, several hundred where the person never had drugs on them to begin with, but the, the separate took a plea. <laughs> yeah. But the separate question is whether they're timely notified of that right. in a way that makes a difference in their case before they get an adverse disposition. Well, it, it's related totally- it, to me. They're related because the question is, is Hinton in the business of telling people that they're innocent? Or is it really only in the business of telling people that they're guilty? Right. And 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 yes, there I'm sure there are occasions where somebody was notified and did get a cert, a negative cert, uh, and that's great. But I but the question is whether that was underrepresented as a practice. Um, and and if if negative certs are sitting in the file cabinet, to me that's consistent with the idea you're not in the business right. of telling people that they can go free. Absolutely. Um, so the second example on the list might also be quite problematic. Uh, Nathan says the results of any sample analysis found on reports of preliminary testing on the gas uh, chromograph instrument should be consistent with all GSCMS findings of that same sample. This example makes it sound as if they are simply disregarding an unstated number of these potential multi-run samples because the duplicate sample number found was on a preliminary GC analysis without verifying the duplicate was consistent. The, The investigation should state that they checked the samples that now have additional data, the newfound GC results, and are consistent with the confirmatory GCMS results already in the database. That may have been what occurred, but they didn't say that, right? Right. The rest of the examples are also somewhat unintelligible. The third example, for instance, claims that the reason for some unquantified number of uh, samples to to appear to have been analyzed more than once is that the GCMS instrument was run overnight. A survey of chemist transcripts and raw lab data easily demonstrates the fact that the Instruments did indeed run overnight with extreme frequency. The OIG set out to find all the multi-run samples very early in the investigation. The idea that a large number of samples would suddenly now appear to have been analyzed in duplicate because of an overnight analysis is simply not a logical one. Further, the act of running the GCMS overnight should not create the appearance of a particular sample was run on more than one date. There is one date uh, acquired, uh, there is one date acquired field associated with one sample number uh, analyzed. So he's saying that, you know, there's just one date in the sample. So if it's run overnight, it doesn't matter. Well, it will default to like the next day's date or one date. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like when you send an email. Um, I don't know if any of you are night owls, but if you, you have you ever wondered what happens if you send an email like at 1159, right? Um, and it's a big has a big attachment, and it takes you know a couple of seconds to to spool or whatever. Um, you know what what what's the date reflected? Is it the date that you hit send, or is it the date that it confirmed to itself that it that it was sent? Um, the the answer is not well. It looks like two emails, 
one when you hit send at 11.59 and one after midnight when, when the email actually went through. It, it's just one email. So whether you run the machine overnight, which was probably the norm, you're still only getting one file generated that says, I'm, I have results. And so I think this idea that, that, that you would be confused by that is, I agree, that seems, I wouldn't say it's not logical. I would say it's sort of laughable. Right. I'm just thinking of what they might be referring to. So like when you look at these packets um, from DPH, once you have the case and you request the lab packet from them, so there's the GCMS printouts. It's like a stack of like 150 pages and it's or more. And it's all the samples that were uh, sent through the GCMS for that run. And so each individual page is going to have a date and time stamp on it. And the sample will generally take, you know, two or three pages, depending upon how many peaks were identified by the machine as it went through. Um, so each one of those will have the specific date and time. And so for that printout, it really shouldn't matter if something started on Thursday night and uh, ended up, uh, you know, being in slot number 100. So it, it came out the following morning. So like the, the one or two or three pages in that 150 pages associated with the evidence sample usually would be the same, but it, they might be saying the, there's that number, that evidence sample number and that date associated with different documents in the file, like the batch sheet or the control sheet, um, which might have a different date. So maybe that's what they're saying, but they're, they're certainly not clear about, um, about it. Absolutely. It, it just leaves a lot of open questions. Again, some of this might be totally legit, you know, but the way they describe it, it, it just seems like they're, they're wanting to just kind of gloss over what these reasons are rather than kind of give you a detailed explanation as to exactly what they mean. And so Nathan says here, lastly, items four and five are also important. If there are numerous typographical errors in the GCMS results, such that a sample number appears twice, that is a large source of potential error. Like that's why I laughed when they said typographical errors. That's huge. Uh, one of those two samples was inputted incorrectly. Even if later corrected by a handwritten notation of the chemist or some other explanation, these errors are important. If a client requests the data attached to an analysis of a particular sample in their case, the database might return inaccurate results as the database does not have the correct number as a searchable result. Like to me, that is massive. That's massive. Like in, in how many of those, like if they're only searching for these that they disregarded, how many of how many typographical errors were there overall? In addition, if there are numerous misread by Navigant's computer search tool of the numbers on a scanned PDF file, the ability of the consolidated database to return an accurate result when requested must also be suspect. Both of these potentially large sources of error really need to be expounded upon, and the potential effects on the ability of the defense of and our clients to rely on the database and the analytical results therein to supply all information required for an adequate defense. So, I mean, it's pretty clear what he's saying there. Like, I mean, 
these guys clearly don't have a handle on on what was going on there. And there's just so many errors with these cases that it's like, well, if I request information from this case, it could be typed in wrong. So I'm getting the wrong cases information. I could be getting a, you know, heroin that was a huge trafficking case rather than my simple, you know, pot bust or whatever. It's it's massive. And, and just going, going, oh, go sorry, going back to the standalone GC, so it, it, um, in, in one particular case, uh, there were um, six samples, four of which uh, I believe turned out to have um, uh, cocaine and two that did not. And they were all together in sequence. And so under my understanding of the lab protocol, uh, they would have all been, you know, put on the bench at the same time and, you know, done the, the, you do the drop tests or spot tests or whatever, and then they all get put in aliquots and, and put in the carousel for the same uh, uh, GCMS run. But for whatever reason, th- this defendant's samples were separated. And the two that were not drugs went to the standalone GC machine, which actually confirmed what they were, um, which was, uh, I don't remember, maybe ibuprofen or, or acetaminophen, don't remember. Um, and the other four uh, didn't go to the standalone GC and went to the next day or two days later to a GCMS operator, and those were confirmed as drugs. But I was always curious why those other two went to the standalone GC, and then like a week later, they went to a different chemist in a different carousel run, um, to do uh, a GCMS, uh, 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 and those found uh, no uh, illegal substances. And so I think that that the OIG should have asked the question, well, if you have a, diff- a discrepancy between the final run and a GC, standalone GC run, you got to really start asking, why was that standalone GC run done? And my theory, uh, in the absence of anyone uh, ever being asked about this, is that maybe the the lab actually wanted to know what something was before they then chose to spike the sample because you wouldn't want to spike a sample if you didn't need to. So it might just be easier to know what it is. And then only if you see that it's not drugs, do you then have to bother spiking it, right? If you think it's cocaine, but it's heroin, you don't need to spike it. Um, if you uh, think it's cocaine and it comes back ibuprofen, then now you, you'd want to know that because then you're going to do whatever you're going to do. So that's the only credible idea that I can come up with why problem samples got the standalone GC, but regular samples did not. Now, I'm open to hearing any other suggestions, but in the absence of any questions from OIG to anybody who actually worked there, I guess we're all left to speculate for ourselves. Right. And just to let the listener know, I did contact the OIG and ask them to not only appear on the podcast, but ask them very pointed, specific questions that appeared in this list and other questions that we have brought up on the podcast. And they flat out refused to um, to come and talk about what they did, which is, you know, not surprising. That's too bad because this is really the most fun that I have my entire week. And I can't believe <laughs> someone would say no to this. I know. How wouldn't they want to be grilled like this? Yeah. Like, like how is that not like number one on their priority of list of things to do on the weekend? It amazes me. But anyways, they, they said no. And they also called me bald, which I thought was hitting below the belt, but you know, it was, uh, that was their choice. Um, supplemental reports. So, so the final retest list, the combination of the new and old samples simply, um, 
uh, I don't know what, <laughs> simply uh, hides what process was used on either. Uh, according to the supplemental report, there were 633 samples added to the 3,347 from the original. The original report supplies additional facts regarding the, the fate of the 3,347 samples. They first removed residue samples to bring the total to 2,987. As we said, again, literally their excuse for removing residue samples was that they most likely will come back negative. Can't have that. You can't have that. No way, no how. Um, uh, they then removed 605 samples that had already been destroyed, bringing the remain. So, you know, those could have also been negative. We'll, we'll never know. Uh, bringing the remainder of the 2,333, uh, 37 samples. Um, these were then divided into two groups, one that could be screened by TrueNARC and one that could be, that could not due to issues with the scanner, e.g. the suspected drug not being in the library of the scanner. The scanning, uh, the screening then performed uh, eliminated 739 samples, leaving 464 that had questionable results from the uh, Rayman scanner. The, oh, I looked online. I think it's uh, Raman. Raman. Okay. Like Raman. With a R-U-H sort of sound to it. Okay. So it's similar to the noodles. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go with noodles anyway. Cause yeah, I know. So, so, so me, they're putting got drugs me through, through college. noodles. <laughs> How is that not a controversy? They're putting them in a cup. They're putting in the microwave for 90 <laughs> seconds. There's a shitload of sodium in there. Yeah. I mean, come on. These, uh, these mean that 1,598 samples were in question by the time the report was published. The supplemental report seems to contradict that summary. The supplemental report combines all of the original and additional samples and begins with 3,980. This, is tr uh, this truly um, hides what occurred to not just the new samples, but also the old samples without distinguishing... Uh, the processes used, the methodology, the methodology of the investigation or a timeline of the investigation or even the identity of the investigators, any assessment of the process is hopelessly muddled, which again was the point. The supplemental report cannot adequately describe what the process was without detailing what exactly happened. The OIG explicitly affirmed they were now in the process of sending the samples that TrueNARC identified as inconclusive or inconsistent, as well as the samples that could not be tested with the TrueNARC to be accredited it, to an accredited independent laboratory outside of the state. <laughs> so the supplemental report's claim is inaccurate. They did not, according to their own first report, ever have a pool of 3,980 samples to reduce. <laughs> But the supplemental wow. report claims they had a pool of 3,980 samples and then removed the, the 739 screened by Raman, removed the 1,029 samples that had been destroyed, removed the 679 residue, removed an additional 641 samples that were determined to have no adverse impact on defendants, and finally removed 47 steroid samples um, leaving only 645 samples to be reanalyzed. Then a further 38 samples were removed from the retest at NMS due to claims that 10 were too degraded and 28 
or outside of NMS testing capabilities. So right there, okay, right there. How did they have anything outside of their testing capabilities? What is that? This is an accredited lab, right? How, how was anything too hard for them to do? Right. I would be okay with a rule, new rule, that if you're caught with a pipe that only has residue on it, that the police say, hey, can't test this because we might get a negative result. Here's your pipe back. Uh, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. I'd be fine with that, right? I'd right. be fine with the system where if you think you're not going to get a good result, then we don't test. But instead, and, and the public has been so conditioned with CSI, right, that they they can find a carpet fiber, um, you know, uh, uh, in, in, a, in a football field if they need to, that, that you can find evidence, right? If there is evidence, we can find it. And, and that mentality... Um, is what drives convictions. And yet when you realize that that mentality is sort of based on, um, you know, some misinformation, all of a sudden it's, uh, we don't want to bother testing because it's going to come back negative. See, you're so nice when you say some misinformation. I say total Hollywood bullshit. (laughs) Right. We should do a CSI um, hinted. <laughs> where instead of like attractive people with symmetrical faces in, a, in an all glass lab, well lit glass lab with a uh, um, tight fitting clothing, uh, we could have somebody in a dingy windowless building in, in um, like the one behind you, um, uh, wearing frumpy clothing and and just fudging stuff that <laughs> with a shitload of cocaine <laughs> stuffed in a drawer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, it just pills everywhere. That's my favorite part of, of the original reports was that there were just like literally pills and envelopes from 20 years beforehand just sitting around in the lab. That's the kind of crap they found when that place closed. Yeah. Okay, a breakdown of why the exclusion of many of these question samples is inaccurate and harmful to defendants will follow. However, it is important to note that between the original 2014 in the 2016 supplemental report, the number of samples destroyed increased by 379. Wow. And Oops. like you'd think they'd say, Oops. hey, don't Stop. destroy any of these samples. Yeah. Don't and, do and, that. And, and by the way, this is just me now. I'm going to sound a, a lot like a lawyer, so I apologize. But when I hear somebody say that there's no, no, nothing wrong here because don't worry, the thing was destroyed. <laughs> I take the opposite conclusion. And in fact, right. there's a legal principle that in some cases allow, allows you to conclude the opposite, that it was destroyed because the person who destroyed it does not want you to know what was there. Absolutely. So if, if you heard someone say, you know, hey, you can't look at my tax returns because don't worry, I destroyed them. <laughs> that doesn't mean there was no tax fraud. Exactly. And, and, but I'm, you know what? I'm sure the IRS will be A-OK with that because the government is oh, totally A-OK with that kind of stuff. They're, they're compassionate now. Yeah, they are. They're like, oh, you destroyed it? Oh, sorry, my bad. You know what? Forget it. Forget I ever asked. You destroyed yeah. your tax returns. A little, little Rosemary Woods action here for the people <laughs> who are older than 50. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, and the number of samples deemed residues increased by 319 as well. So together, these increases in the number of samples denied uh, retesting, 698 more samples removed as residues or previously destroyed than the original report. Already 
already outweighed the additional sample numbers found. (laughs) (laughs) At least 65 of the samples the OIG had uh, said were already in the process of being retested were now deemed previously destroyed or more residues. Further, the use of legal outcome, quote unquote, to remove 841 question uh, samples clearly negates a portion of the original report, which did not include that measure, but instead maintained that they were being sent out for retesting. So <laughs> they right. made up new criteria. Well, and, and I, again, I think when people are trying to understand what to make of samples that were not tested or data that was skipped over, and a lot of people think, well, what's the big deal? Well, A, we're talking about a, a person's civil liberties and freedom, okay? So that's, right. that's a big deal. But second, just pretending to be a scientist, you don't know until you analyze data what the significance of even one data point is. And I'll give you an example of where one data point can be significant. Um, it, the antidepressants that were uh, uh, the most, one of the most popular class of drugs uh, this millennium, when they came out, uh, it was discovered later that there were problems with teenagers taking these drugs and suicidality. And the drug company's argument was, we had no idea. Well, they did have an idea because there was at least one person in one of the clinical trials who did have, uh, I, I believe, either a, a completed or attempted suicide. And that data point was concealed. Uh, and it was a crossover trial, meaning you were on placebo for a time and then you crossed over to the active drug and they blamed the suicide on the placebo. And if you had gone back and corrected it, the FDA would have known about the problem of suicide and they would have demanded more questions and more answers and, and, and probably a lot of lives could be saved. So when, when someone starts talking about, oh, we didn't test these 23 or we didn't look at this 48, those can be potentially not only significant, but absolute game changers. So you don't even know um, and you're not supposed to know in advance what, what effect these things will have. You're supposed to look at everything. That's the basis of science. You look at everything. You look at all your data. You don't come up with artificial limitations. And so I think that the fact that they excluded stuff or they allowed stuff to be destroyed uh, or they 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 change the they move the goalposts right. This is the classic pharma ploy. You move the goalposts during the game so that your Scott Norwood wide right field goal all of a sudden was good right down the middle. Uh, right. Perfect. Um, you can't do that. And and I'll I'll even add to that. You can't if you want an actual scientific outcome. You can't have expectation or biases going in. Right. You you can't have that or else everything, you'll, you'll just be testing to the bias because there is a desired outcome. And clearly here, there is a desired outcome without a doubt. All right, I'll go through um, this, this last one. Let's, let's just do removal of samples and uh, let's, let's take a pause and, and reconvene at some point um, to, uh, to finish up Nathan's report because really it's, it's, it's so chock full of relevant information. He did such a great job at comparing the 2014 report with uh, the 2016 report and finding gaps that um, it really needs to be kind of explored fully. Um, Many of the, so he says, removal of samples, details. Many of the samples that the OIG decided should not be or were not able to be reanalyzed are improperly excluded from an analysis of this data. 
the first group of samples the OIG discarded uh, was those for which the sample itself had been destroyed by court order in the normal course of its business. Now, it's hard to fault the investigators not being able to retest something that's been destroyed, obviously. But the OIG went on to reduce the number of, uh, of retests much lower than that. These reductions included removing the samples that were deemed residues, samples that were deemed to have no adverse effect on a defendant, some steroid samples, and some samples deemed to be degraded or for which uh, NMS did not have the means to test. To me, that is not an excuse. <laughs> like the, the fact that they even hired someone that couldn't test all the drugs they needed should have been, okay, can we get someone else to test these? Like, What's isn't the, that the first thing? What's the reason to exclude steroids? I'm yeah, sort of curious. I, um, they didn't say. I don't know. I'm not sure. Because certainly uh, the person whose sample that was uh, didn't get a, a pass on the first time, right? Because that thing was tested and presumably there was some sort of you know plea deal or something based on a steroid. Right. So it's important to realize what each of these samples removed actually are. So we'll get into that, Ilias. There are samples that had inconsistencies in testing processes and results deemed questionable by the OIG's own experts. Uh, there was something wrong or inaccurate with the lab's analysis of each one of these samples, and the defendant in these cases were never informed of the potentially serious issues with the Commonwealth's evidence. The, pro the prosecution was never informed either, so these samples never received the scrutiny they should have from either side. There is actually an important, uh, so destroyed samples. There is actually an important issue with the OIG's uh, treatment of samples thought to have been destroyed. The issue is one of methodology. Neither report actually describes how these particular samples were determined to have been destroyed, only mentioning that the police departments in question were sent letters of inquiry. In the course of CPCS's investigation into the Hinton Lab disaster, a very common question asked was, if the sample had been destroyed, it was a challenge to answer the, that question. Perhaps due to the process for ordering the discretion of drug evidence in Massachusetts being needlessly complicated, it was reported, admittedly anecdotally, that sometimes court orders were indeed issued, but the evidence was not destroyed, or sometimes the evidence was seemingly destroyed without a court order to do so. <laughs> there, there have That's also been a... Oh, go ahead. Um, you have an example of that? The Boston Police Department evidence warehouse where you know, over the years, evidence has gone missing or is found to be tampered with. And a whole bunch of even just my cases, there would be an order in the clerk's office file that the judge signed saying, you know, these are to be just returned to the police department and destroyed, but they'd just still be sitting in the uh, BPD warehouse down in, what is it, Hyde Park? Unbelievable. And this well, is wasn't there wasn't there an overtime um, um, uh, yeah, racket involving uh, uh, supposedly weekend um, you know time and a half or double time uh, trips that somebody could make to the warehouse and you could spend all day destroying evidence and then come back and and watch yeah. some college football or whatever and uh, and it turns out that there was no no trips uh, or or uh, perfunctory trips. Uh, just to get the uh, the overtime money, but not no samples were destroyed. So that seems to me uh, to be a curious thing that you might not want to uncover accidentally in an OIG investigation. 
Yeah, I mean, recently there are people who pleaded guilty to the overtime fraud out of the warehouse, but like that's not the only incident or series of incidents in the early 2000s. Uh, there was a big BPD internal investigation into what happened with, I can't remember if it was dozens or hundreds of samples that appeared to be tampered with. And they investigated it for a year and came out with a report not naming anyone uh, as the culprit. So, right. And then there's, there's at least three, um, aside from Boston, I'm aware, I'm aware of at least three different police departments that had somebody um, either granting unauthorized access to or availing themselves of, uh, of evidence without uh, uh, following um, proper protocols. Um, and I believe two of those three um, scandals resulted in, in death, uh, I think by suicide of the person yes. deemed culpable. Yeah. So unfortunately, uh, we'll never know what was going on there. Um, but I think most recently, the t- uh, the town of Framingham, the city or a town, um, the 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 hamlet of, of Framingham, um, uh, sort of uh, um, revealed that maybe they left a key to the evidence room under the mat, uh, and anyone could have gone in there. Um, and uh, and so, you know. That would be, I suppose, if you're in the OIG, wouldn't that be interesting to you? And the OI, and I think the OIG knew at least of two of those by this time, and that's not in their report. So again, you're sort of saying, um, you know, was this an investigation or was this just a report? Well, it was a narrow, biased investigation into one person that that had a lot of ancillary things come out of it that they abruptly swept under the rug that they did, did not want to get into. So th- the most important consideration is that these samples were questioned by the investigators. There were problems with these samples. In fact, the OIG themselves concluded that they had to be treated as suspect. As no- so they're destroying suspect samples, as noted above, uh, but, but they may not have even been destroyed. They might still exist today. As noted above, the OIG was interested in retesting 3,347 samples because of anomalies among uh, testing results in the drug lab. Of those 3,347, approximately 605 samples had already been destroyed by the police departments in in the normal course after the conclusion of the case. With respect to cases with samples that the OIG wanted to retest, but which no longer exists, the OIG suggests that the case be evaluated with increased concern, quote unquote. I'm sure they were all dismissed, right? I'm sure that evaluation absolutely happened. Uh, the defendants were never notified of these issues, the com- uh, of the issues with the Commonwealth's evidence against them. It, it does not matter that the evidence can no longer be tested. Uh, these defendants need to be notified now to correct the injustice caused by the Hinton Labs, um, you know, obstruction of these results in their case, regardless of the investigation or its findings. As with all the question samples in their testing, the inability to perform a retest does not invalidate the rights of the defendants in the cases. Uh, further, that these samples could not be retested does not remove them from consideration in an assessment of the Hinton Lab's complete lack of reliability. 
great points all around. Residue samples. The OIG also specifically discarded any samples deemed residues. Interestingly enough, the OIG explicitly discarded these samples because they felt they would come back likely negative. The OIG removed all known residues from the list, reasoning that virtually the entire sample was likely to have been consumed during the original drug testing. So a negative finding at this point would be unreliable. The, this exact rationale is mentioned in identical fashion in the supplemental report with the added footnote. A residue refers to a small quantity of substance, often contained in a needle, spoon, wrapper, or other type of drug paraphernalia. Chemists often have have to scrape or rinse these items in order to obtain enough of the substance to perform a chemical analysis on it. That warms your heart. That really like shows that they are absolutely finding the uh, results there, doesn't it? If they have to scrape and maybe something comes with it or whatever rinse means. Anyways, uh, while this is a serviceable definition of a residue in a drug case, it is not a methodological description. It, it is not a means for assessing the data previously produced or if the physical sample present could be retested. It is unclear what process was used to determine what samples were residue and does not justify the exclusion of these samples from this review. For example, if the OIG just excluded any question sample that the Hinton Labs database called a residue, they are relying on the accuracy of the database. This would be rather questionable, knowing what they do about the standards and practices of the Hinton Lab. It, if that is the only step they took, the report must describe and justify their actions. There are many potential variations in the testing of, resi of a residue. They can involve the scraping off of a, of a chemical crust, swabbing of areas or um, minute powders, blah, blah, blah. He, he describes all the, the ways to test. They should have pulled the paper work related to these samples and reviewed the actual notes to see if they found some evidence of the sampling done. They could have requested the samples in these cases to make the individual determination uh, that retesting was inappropriate. The investigation may have done this, but they did not provide a description of their methods. So no assessment of the appropriateness uh, of excluding these samples can be made. I mean, that, that's a great point there. Like, again, they're just they're just telling us, oh, yeah, we did, excluded these because of this broad reason, but not, you know, we, we did all of these things to make sure that these things couldn't be retested, but they should still be looked into like that. That's something that they would say if they actually cared about, you know, people's freedom. But they didn't say that. They just said, we dismiss these. We can't retest these. Sorry. Um, further, there is a glaring logical fallacy in the OIG's conclusions. They decide to treat samples that were destroyed and therefore unable to be retested with heightened concern. There is no logical reason to treat residues differently, as the conclusion is the same. They cannot be retested. The only cognitive difference between the samples is that the OIG thought that a retest of a residue was likely to come back negative, which again proves the point that they didn't want things to come back negative. They eventually felt that this fact, which would help defendants whose rights the drug lab had clearly in, uh, trampled over, 
uh, upon uh, uh, by withholding potential exculpatory evidence was enough to not consider them with the same scrutiny. This is troubling and indefensible. I agree with that. What do you guys think? I, I, I mean, certainly everyone should have been notified that the inspector general's investigators, you know, found potential problems with their samples and the lab's records, uh, but we can't retest it. I mean, there's, there is a legal test for claims based upon police or government destruction of evidence, and it doesn't necessarily turn on whether or not um, there was some malevolent reason for it. Uh, certainly that's worse, but, you know, if you can demonstrate that, um, I forget the exact standard, but if it would have been, I forget if it's potentially helpful to your case or something higher, but still there's, there's a legal standard out there that every one of these defendants should have had the ability to have an attorney look at their cases and, and what the lab documents were that the inspector general's office found problematic, even though the sample doesn't exist anymore, there's still could well have been a remedy, a legal remedy for many of these defendants, but they just were never notified. All right, we're gonna, let's go over, uh, Elias, do you have anything to add? Well, I would just say that, that I think the way to do something to be thorough and accurate um, would involve a testing of as much as, as possible, even if it's outside of your um, uh, hypothesis. Right. Um, the scientific uh, method it involves actually the null hypothesis, the, the meaning you you believe you, you you posit that you're wrong and try to prove that you're correct. You don't say you're correct and then try to confirm it through convenient data. Right. And so it, it, a there should have been as much testing as possible. Um, B, there should have been testing or investigation of all of these little points along the way. So when they said samples were destroyed in the ordinary course, that doesn't sound like the product of an investigation. That sounds like something you just put in a report. Did you do an investigation to prove that all samples were destroyed in the ordinary course? Because we now know that samples being destroyed in the ordinary course is sort of a, a, a uh, an oxymoron um, because they're not really destroyed in the ordinary course. They're sort of randomly haphazardly destroyed you, you, and I, I doubt that all of them were destroyed in the ordinary course. So you'd want to do an investigation to confirm that they were all just destroyed in the ordinary course. Um, uh, because if they weren't, that's a huge red flag right there. So I think that, that the, what's, what science requires is that you test everything and then you can do additional tests to, to try to challenge your assumptions or confirm them. Um, you can say, we, we, we tested these residues and they came back negative, um, you know, and therefore you can ex exclude those results. But why are they making taking away that judgment from us? Why are they letting their views, which may or may not even be validated, uh, dictate the results? And I think that's the big concern here is that this appears to have been just a classic results-driven um, pseudoscientific endeavor designed to, to suppress any further questions instead of really being a roadmap to what I think should have been further investigation. I agree. And I mean, clearly there, there was a desired outcome here. And, um, and that is incredibly troubling. 
So uh, let's let's do steroids and then let's um, let's give a pause and, and pick it up. Let's, you mean let's talk about steroids? Or no, let's let's all do let's steroids do right steroids. now. Let's do steroids. I'm here. Um, a final category of sample. Um, so steroids. A final category of sample was removed. The OIG removed 47 uh, steroid samples from the retest list after determining that it is that its initial finding of inconsistency among the hit and drug lab testing was in error. That is, the OIG initially understood there to be inconsistencies between the primary chemist's preliminary steroid finding and the confirmatory chemist finding. The OIG learned, however, that for the 47 steroid samples removed from the list, the preliminary findings were based solely on the labeling of the steroid container and not on chemical testing. Therefore, the initial finding was actually unknown as opposed to being analytical finding of, you know, for example, testosterone or whatever, because all of of the GCMS test results were inconsistent, the OIG determined that these 47 steroid samples should not be retested. Wow. I think, I think you said inconsistent. It should be consistent. Yeah. I, I think what that's oh, saying is, yeah. I think what they're saying is that because we, um, because we, we didn't actually do a preliminary test, we, uh, 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 but we said we did, there was no actual inconsistency. And and I would say that I would derive the opposite conclusion from that, right? right. If you said you're, you, you just that read is, what's on the label. I mean, why do you need to send it to a drug drug lab? Are the police incapable of reading what's on a on a vial label? Dude, uh, it seems to me that that's that's an inconsistency. That opens up so many questions. <laughs> they they weren't even testing these; they were just literally reading the label. Like, and I'm sure they said that in court, right? Oh, I just looked at the label and it said steroid guilty. Like, really? Like that, that is like, it could have said, you know, tricks. It could have said Cocoa Puffs, you know? I mean, what? It, it, oh my God, that is ridiculous. And they use that as justification for not retesting this stuff. While the elimination of these steroid samples isn't as troubling as the other reductions, both in quantity and justification, it is still an issue. To declare the initial finding as unknown is factually inaccurate. The lab used appearance and labeling as an acceptable means of preliminary identification in these Class E cases. This is what we discussed before. The, prelimin the uh, preliminary chemist followed a lab procedure and identified the steroid based on the label present. The confirmatory chemist then found a different form of steroid. This is an inconsistency that should not be waved away. Presumably, the lab had many steroid samples that had that um, they preliminary identified based on the labeling. Also, presumably, the co confirmation testing in those cases agreed with the label. These did not. While that might have been an issue due to mistaken or fraudulent label, it does not necessarily justify the lab's results or the OIG's exclusion of the samples from retesting consideration. Again, methodology of the uh, analysis must be given in detail. Essentially, these 47 samples should be put in context with similar samples and explained, not simply de declared as no longer inconsistent. So the, by this logic, 
if they knew that there were, let's say, 2,000 samples where Annie Dukin and others dry labbed, they shouldn't have retested those because there was no actual inconsistency. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, like, and how um, is this not... Like, this is yeah, what... that's absurd. This that's is like, absurd. What, what worrisome thought that crosses my mind. All right, so, I mean, it's really bad if you're just going on appearance and labeling as the test, but... Hold on. What if the label was right the whole time and the GCMS result is wrong and uh, NMS labs can confirm that it's actually the type of steroid that was on the label and there's something either wrong with the training of the GCMS chemist, the GCMS machine itself, or the drug standards that they were using, right? So Absolutely. It opens up so many questions. And not only that, it like... It gives you a better understanding of why they dry lab. How is dry labbing that much different than other processes that the lab used? It's not, right? You it's, mean other like non-scientific processes? Yeah, like like just looking at a label and saying and, and saying, oh yeah, this illegal drug that was taken off the street um, has a label on it saying it was this, so it must be that. Like, how is that different than just looking at a vial of cocaine and saying, oh, that looks like cocaine? Like to me, the that's pretty close. You know, yes. it's it's or, pretty damn close. For non-statistically based representative sampling, where right. you know there are statistical methods to employ in order to make sure that you can actually make projections about what's uh, contained in a certain number of bags that are all of, uh, appear to be consistent mixture, whatever. Right, right? that's still dry lapping. It's, 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 not, it's, it's just under a different name. Well, I mean, like, there's when you're using statistics to do it, that's defensible. But if you're just picking a number out of the hat of the number of baggies to test, that's not. Right. So that's essentially dry labbing as well. Right. And like, so you, you kind of understand what Dukin was doing. And in her mind, it must not have been that far of a reach. And I'm sure other people dry labbed in that lab. And it must not have been that far of a reach to do it because they were already basically doing it with class C like that. They were, it's, it's a dry lab, but the only difference is they were reading something rather than looking at something. And I, and I, again, there's no clear answers here, but I believe also marijuana. Yes. Yes. They were just looking at a microscope at hairs. Right. I mean, I believe there was, I believe marijuana was subjected to a scientific test known as macro examination. Uh, and <laughs> which is where you just look at it with your yeah. eyes, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and maybe some micro examination too. But but you know uh, what they said they were doing and what they did is is a, is a troubling uh, uh, gulf uh, on occasion in this case. Right. I'll just I'll just conclude here. It it could be that the lab did address these initial inconsistencies by running the same uh, multiple times on the GCMS. And then specifically found in their notes that the labeling was wrong. It could also be that steroids, which are very complex molecules, are hard to demonstrably confirm on a GCMS. Um, and they noted this in the lab notes. But these are not described in the findings of the OIG report. The OIG simply uh, and incorrectly claim that they first that the first result was actually unknown. So no follow-up was required. I mean, that right there. Like the, they, the OIG like made up their own excuse and then just applied it. So by the way, I, you know, I, I, I probably said this type of thing before, 
But you know, I like to tie this back to the war on drugs and and right. and and, I, and blame. Uh, I think the root cause of all of this on a on a hysterical uh, and and uh, at times absurd and 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 generally uh, futile effort. But um, st- steroids, I guess, are uh, a, a matter of criminal concern uh, for the state of Massachusetts, apparently. Um, and yet, the people that we know have taken steroids without a prescription in many cases. Uh, have never received even a knock on the door from the police. And that would be um, entire pro-athlete teams. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and we uh, know, you know, yeah. certain local sports heroes in this city who we know from the Mitchell report uh, uh, took steroids. Um, you know, the book Game of Shadows suggests that that um, even, even marginal athletes have been taking steroids. Um, so if you really wanted to do an investigation of steroids, if that's a top priority, why aren't we going to the you know local college football teams, the local professional football teams, the local baseball teams? Where it where is the actual consistency in that? And the reality is there is no consistency because it's 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 subjective. We target the communities that we're going to over police, that we're going to subject to arrest, and then we decide unilaterally whether uh, uh, when there's problems after the fact, whose samples we're going to reinvestigate. And I think all of that is troubling. Absolutely. 100%. All right, guys. So um, great episode today. We're going to, we're going to pick this up again and just conclude the whole um, OIG supplemental report in the next episode. Uh, where Nathan gets into the retesting results. We'll we'll do that quick. And then we'll, after that episode, we're going to get into the class E stuff, but this was great. It's great to be back. Um, Thank you, Ilias. Thank you, Chris. Um, Great talking to you. And uh, we will reconvene soon. Thank you for listening to the rig podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.